Good morning, Penn Valley family. As Adam said, it is really great to be with you this morning and to worship our risen King together. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Jason Carver. I'm one of the elders here, uh, and I have the privilege of serving on the teaching team for Sunday mornings. So, in 1959, so a little over 60 years ago, a first-time NFL head coach took over a storied NFL franchise, which was one of the original franchises in the NFL. The team had fallen into disrepair, and for almost 20 years, even though it had a long history of winning, it had been about 20 years since they had won anything. The very next year, that coach turned that team around, and they made it to the playoffs and actually got into the NFL championship game, but lost to our Eagles. Now, as you can imagine, that summer between when that championship game happened and when, or that year between the championship game and when training camp started was an agonizing time for this team. They played over and over in their heads what had gone wrong because they were ahead in the championship and there was only a few minutes left on the clock and by all accounts, they should have won. But it sat so bitterly with them that, until, that entire season. Then on the first day of training camp, their coach walked in, somebody by the name of Vince Lombardi. And he took out a football and he raised it in his hand and he said these famous five words, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, the entire summer, they were expecting he was gonna be called, going over new schemes and new ideas on how they could improve. And instead, he went back to what they already knew. And that was his motto. And after that year, after 1960, he coached another seven years. And out of those seven years, he won five NFL championships, including the first two Super Bowls. He didn't, he didn't go back, he didn't go forward to something new. He went back and reminded them of the fundamentals. This morning, as we finish out the series in the book of John, we're going to be looking at John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you or don't have the app on your phone, I think it's page 769 uh, in the uh, Pew Bibles. But the similar, there's a similar situation going on here. Now, of course, it didn't involve a championship football game. But what it did involve was a group of men, and one in particular, who was feeling pretty low. He thought he was a champion. And yet, when his leaders was facing death, he ran away. He wouldn't even acknowledge him. And now he's dealing with that guilt and shame. His name, of course, is Peter. And so we're going to be looking at this last chapter and what happens in Peter's life. Now we're after the resurrection, but it hasn't yet become Pentecost, so it's that 50-day window in there where Jesus is still on earth but, being, but getting ready to go home. To the Father. And let's take a look at what happens in Peter's life. So let's do a little bit of uh, refresh, just so we're up to date on the story. So as you know, from the beginning of John's gospel account, he's going to let us know that in the beginning was this word. John introduces him as a living word who always was, always is, always will be. He's the light of the world, a light that the darkness cannot overcome. He made the world and everything in it, and yet the very people he made 
rebelled against him and rejected him. So what did this word do? Did he rain down brimstone on them? No. He decided to take on flesh and live among the very people that had rejected him. And while doing so, he personified to them grace and truth in a way that revealed what God is really like, so that any one of those who would believe in him could be part of his family. So John, throughout his gospel, he's going he's to set it up around seven miracles and seven I am statements, and they take up about the first half of his gospel account. The second half, which is what we've been looking at since the beginning of January, deals with the last week of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday onward. And that's where we're going to end today, as right before he goes back to the Father, his time with Peter. But in the interim, he's going to have his last supper. He's going to go to the garden and be betrayed by one of the 12 men he chose to be part of his ministry. And then he's going to go to a sham trial led by the religious leaders who were just looking for some minuscule way to find him guilty and get rid of him because, they had, because he had taken away their attention. John then moves us on to the crucifixion, right? And here's what he says in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In a moment, Satan was defeated. A new covenant was ushered in. The perfect and final sacrifice was made. And the debt was fully paid. But his body laid in a grave for three days. So you can imagine for his disciples what that must have been like. We thought this was it. Now what's going to happen? And so they show up on the first day of the week, and the stone is rolled away, and there's no body inside, but it doesn't sink in yet. They think somebody's come and taken the body. So now they're frantic. But then they engage with an angel who says, ah, he's not here, he's risen. Right? So they go back and they tell the others, but at first it just seems like kind of a, a myth. This can't be really happening. And then Jesus starts showing up. He shows up to Mary, and with one word saying her name, she recognizes who he is. He then goes to Thomas, as Adam talked about last week. And Thomas was like, you know what? I'm not going to believe this hocus-pocus unless I can see the prince in his fans and unless I can see the spear that went in his side. And Jesus says, here it is, right? So Jesus, one by one, is engaging with his disciples, showing them that, in fact, he is risen, that the message is true. And then John comes to this statement. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that, by believing, may have life in his name. Now, it would seem, wouldn't it, that this is the perfect spot to end his gospel account, right? Jesus is risen. It's clear his disciples get it. They see him. They've interacted with him. And yet, John doesn't end there. 
And in fact, none of the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, do either. Because the resurrection is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning of the New Testament. This is where Jesus is going to continue his ministry. And we see that in Acts. But there's this 50-day window that he takes before he ascends and before the Spirit comes and lives in his people, he takes these 50 days. And that's where we're at in John chapter 21. Now notice, let's just refresh ourselves on how the other three gospel writers end theirs, right? They're all pretty similar. They're all going back to, in essence, the Great Commission. Matthew most specifically, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. But Mark says something very similar, and so does Luke. And we could be left thinking as we read through John that John's on kind of a different page, and maybe to a degree that's true. But I hope what we'll see this morning is John is tying in this continued ministry of Christ, and he's doing it through this interaction that Jesus has with some of his disciples, and most specifically, Peter. So let's get started. So we're going to see in the life of Peter, someone who was a fantastic failure becomes a faithful follower. Jesus, we're going to see, is going to remind Peter of something. He's going to restore Peter, and he is going to readjust Peter. So he's going to remind, restore, and readjust. But in doing so, he's also going to call us. He's going to call us to fish, to feed, and to follow. So let's set the stage in the first three verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to disciples by the Sea of Tiberia. Now, right there, that's a name, the Sea of Tiberias, that you may be like, where is this at? You probably know it by another name, the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus first met his disciples way back at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And so they're there. Why? Well, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot, if you've heard messages on John 21, they go through a lot of different ideas. But let me just say, this is where I've kind of landed on this. In Matthew 28 and in Mark 16, after the angels appear to the disciples at the tomb, they say to the women, go tell the disciples to go ahead to Galilee. Jesus will meet them there. So here they are at Galilee. And now look who's there. It says, there's Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two other of the disciples. How would you like to be the two other guys, by the way? Like James, John, and Peter get almost all the attention of the disciples as it is in the gospel accounts. And then you've got guys like Matthew and to a bit, to a degree, Philip and Nathaniel. And then you are just these two other guys. Like, really? At the end, you couldn't even just mention my name? But no, that's not what John does, and that's because that's not really his point, right? But here you've got seven guys who are waiting on Jesus, not sure what's going on, and they're back in a familiar place at a familiar sea where they had, for most of their lives, done their trade as fishermen. And so, 
Here we see Peter's going to say, I'm going fishing, and the others are going to follow, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to take, a, take notice, and this is not the main point, but I want you to notice who is there, because I think this is important, and I think there's a little something there that we can draw out, even of this passage. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. Now think about who these guys were. John was the guy who thought first, and then he acted right? Peter is the opposite. He acted, and then sometimes he would think. Nathaniel, we see at the beginning of John's gospel in John chapter 1, is a guy who appears a little bit superstitious, right? Um, Philip comes to him and he says, you know what, we found the uh, Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And he's like, from Nazareth? Nothing good can come out of there, can it? Right? And then Jesus says, oh, here's a man who there's no deceit in. And he's like, how do you know me? And he's like, I saw you under the fig tree. And whatever that meant, Nathaniel's like, whoa, okay. And he says, you're the son of God, right? So he's kind of this superstitious guy, and that gets his attention. Thomas is the absolute opposite, right? At the end of last week's message, or last week's passage, we see him interacting with Thomas. And Thomas says before that, I'm not going to believe unless I can see the nail prints in his hands and the spear in his side. Right? He goes by the evidence, not by superstition. And yet all of them are together. And it seems like they chose to be together, right? They're not like all at separate hotels somewhere on the Sea of Galilee. They're together. And I think that's important because it points out just how different Jesus' perspective is on calling people than ours might be, right? Jesus calls this group of people who really don't seem like they would fit together. Think about it for a minute. Matthew, right, is a tax collector, right? He's a bureaucrat. You've got Simon the Zealot, who's a nationalist. So it's sort of like, hey, let's take a progressive and a member of the Tea Party and put them on the same team. But that's exactly what Jesus does, right? because he's calling people from all different backgrounds, all different life experiences, every tongue, tribe, and nation to be part of his family, to be part of his church, to be part of his mission. So that's just sort of a little bit of an aside. But notice here what happens next. They're together, and Peter says, you know what? I'm going to go out fishing. Now, we don't know why he did it. Did he have to do it financially because he needed money, because that was his trade? Did he do it because he it was cathartic? It was something to do while he waited to figure out what Jesus was up to? We don't know. But he says, I'm going to go fishing, and they all say, you know what? We're going to join you. And so the point really isn't why did they go fishing. The point is what happens when they do go fishing, or more specifically, what doesn't happen. And look what it says there. They were out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They went back to what they were familiar with, what they were good at, and they got nothing out of it. Now, we're going to see here as the story continues, Jesus is setting the stage, right? He's setting it up for them to get what he wants them to understand. And as he does so, let's notice the first thing, that Jesus reminds Peter. He reminds Peter specifically of three incidences from his past. Two are very clear, one's more a visual piece, and we'll see that in a minute.
But experience number one, Jesus goes back to the beginning of his ministry with the disciples, right? If you look back at Luke chapter five, where are they? They're on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus gets in a boat and he says, can you push off the shore? Here's this traveling rabbi and he's teaching people. And then at the end of his teaching time, he says to these lifelong fishermen, hey guys, I noticed you didn't catch anything. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they sort of begrudgingly do it, right? But not before they remind them, hey, we're the professional fishermen. We don't really know who you are, right? You're just some traveling rabbi whose dad was a carpenter. And they throw the nets in and what happens? They're maxed to capacity. So much so that the nets start to break and the boats start to sink. It's almost an identical situation to what's happened here, right? We see that there's this kind of shadowy character though here on the beach calling out to them and they're about a football field distance apart from him. And it's early in the morning, the light's just starting to come up. They don't know who this is. Just like at the beginning, they didn't know who Jesus was when he called them. But he says, have you caught anything? They're like, no. Like, gee, thanks for rubbing it in. And he says, throw it out on the other side. The memory comes back, right? To when he first did this with them. But notice that there is a difference. If what happens in the first account in Luke 5, this is group participation time. This is see if you've been paying attention so far. What is Peter's response in Luke chapter 5 when he sees the haul of fish that they take in? You just call it out. Anybody. You can even look it up. I'm going to let it be an open book test, all right? What does Peter say? Here's what he says. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He sees Jesus do something miraculous. He realizes, wait a minute, this isn't just some traveling rabbi. This guy's unique. He's, maybe he's God. Right, but Peter wants no part of it. He's uncomfortable because Jesus' miraculous act exposes Peter's sinfulness. And he says, depart from me. But what happens in John 21? It connects to John first, right? And John's like, wait a minute, we've been through this. That's Jesus out there. And what does Peter do, right? He's in his tidy whities on the boat. And he says, you know what? I got to get to Jesus right now. And so what does he do? He puts on his clothes, which is kind of odd. You're jumping in the water. Why are you putting everything on? That's going to weigh you down. And let me tell you something, just real quick. That's a great example of why this is not a myth. This is somebody's memory of what happened that day. Because it makes no sense if it was a myth to say the guy put his clothes back on and jumped in the water. Right, so he puts them on and we don't know, did he do a cannonball, a belly flop? We have no idea, but he is just trying to get in 
to get to Jesus, even though he's in a boat and probably could have gotten there a little bit quicker that way. But he's not thinking. He's responding. And so instead of being pushed away from Jesus, instead of wanting Jesus to be gone, now he wants to be close to Jesus. Isn't this great? Peter's not the man he was before. He's not the man he's going to be. But something has definitely changed in his heart from the time he first met Jesus three years ago to now. So experience number two. When he gets to shore, what's there? A fire. Now, John doesn't specifically bring this up. But if we think about it for a moment, what happened at a fire? He denied him, right? And so here's this charcoal fire. There's the smell of the fish and the bread. And if you know anything about the sense of smell, right, it triggers memories, right? So I am sure that for Peter, being near the fire, seeing Jesus, smelling the smells is taking him back a few days, right? to a a moment he would rather not relive. Now, not too long ago, I was at a restaurant, and somebody nearby me ordered chicken livers. Now, I I, I agreed. That is like the most ungodly thing I can think to order off of a menu. But it took me back when they brought it out to my childhood, because my maternal grandmother lived with us, and she loved chicken livers. To this day, I don't understand why. I cannot grasp it, but she loved it. And in the summer, before we had air conditioning in the house, the windows would be open, and if they were being cooked, you could smell it from a long distance away. And so I would get back into our little narrow backyard, and I'd be at the top of the yard, and I'd be trying to find a way that I could get out without being seen and not get into the dinner, because I wanted no parts of the smell. But being at that restaurant brought back those memories, right? Here's Peter at a fire, seeing Jesus with all the smells that would have reminded him of those few days ago, where he had betrayed and denied Jesus. So we see Jesus go back to the beginning. We see him go back to the betrayal. And lastly, in this part, we see him go back to Peter's boast. Now, this is a little bit further on in the passage, but that last line there, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's the only time he asked the question that way. Do you love me more than these? Now, what are these that he's referencing? Are they the fish? Are they the boats? Are they the nets? Well, he doesn't specifically stay, but look at the context. Peter is there with Jesus and the other disciples. What happened the last time before the resurrection and the crucifixion where Jesus was together with his disciples? He flat out tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, listen, I don't know about these other losers here, but I will not. 
I will stay with you. I am willing to die for you. I will never betray you. I will never forsake you. And yet we know that's exactly what happened. So can you imagine Peter sees Jesus, he runs to him, and then he sees the fire, and then Jesus starts asking these questions. Right? Let's get why, let's get to why he's doing that, because this is important. Before we do that, let's notice the first call here, because it's referenced by the passage it goes back to in Luke 5, right? When Peter says, get away from me, Jesus, what is Jesus' response? Here's your chance to make up for not getting the first answer. Let's try again. What does, what does Jesus say to him? He says the first part is, don't be afraid. He knows Peter is, he's afraid, he's terrified in Jesus' presence. Don't be afraid. I will make you what? Fishers of men. Peter, you're still going to be a fisherman, but it's going to look a lot different because what you're going to fish for isn't these fish that you're pulling up out of the sea in nets and taking to the market. It's going to be people who are presently living in a kingdom of darkness, and I'm going to use you to bring them into the kingdom of light. Now, to understand that imagery, though, we have to understand for a first century audience what that would have meant, what the sea would have embodied, because symbolism was so important to them. And the sea was a place of chaos, it was a place of danger, of dark and cold. It was another realm in their mindset. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm calling you to go to that realm and do what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, to be part of my work to transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light to the kingdom of his beloved son, right? You're not going to pull live fish out that are then going to die and you're going to sell at a marketplace. You're going to be with me pulling dead people, dead in their sins, out of the cold, dark domain that they live in, that they might actually have life, Peter. And that's a call that he still has for the church today, is it not? to be fishers of men. So secondly, we've seen that he reminds Peter of his past. Now, let's see that he restores Peter in the present. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, as he's restoring Peter, let's notice three things. Let's notice Jesus' gracious partnership, his gracious invitation, and his gracious wounding. His gracious partnership. Jesus fed 5,000, right? With a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. He's got fish here already. Where did they come from? The market wasn't open, right? But he's God, right? He can bring fish out if he wants to. He doesn't need the disciples. And yet, what does he do here? He invites them to participate with him. 
He invites them to bring what they have and join it together with what he has. He doesn't need them and he doesn't need us, and yet he offers this opportunity to bring what we have and put it together with what he has. That's grace. But it's not just the gracious partnership. Look at what he says next. He says, come and have breakfast. There's an invitation here, right? We're from a a, a long history, church-wise, of the idea of an invitation, that when the gospel is proclaimed, we want to give opportunity as people hear it, to accept it, and to acknowledge it publicly. Jesus is giving an invitation here to these wounded men to have breakfast with them. Now think about that again, contextually for a moment with me. What happens in ancient times when you eat with somebody? You're accepting that person, right? Think about what it is that the Pharisees and Jesus' other opponents say about him. What's one of their chief charges? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He comes into their presence and he allows them into his and he's okay with it. He can't be a man of God if he does that because he doesn't know who these people are. And yet Jesus proudly wears that badge, right? It's like the story of the, of the small town pastor who has a red sports car and he has a friend who's an alcoholic. And every time he sees his friend's truck at the bar, he stops in to meet with his friend because he dearly cares about his soul. And there's this older lady in the church who doesn't like the fact that he does this because of what it looks like. And so one Sunday after the service, she comes to him and she says, hey, you know what? You need to stop this. And and he graciously explains, but my friend is lost and I want him to know about Jesus. It doesn't matter. Think about how it looks. So what is his only option here? He drops his car off at her house, walks home, and leaves it there overnight. (laughs) Right? Think about what it looks like. Right? But Jesus is willing to say, you know what? I don't care what the religious leaders think or say about me. I've come to call sinners to a relationship with me, and I'm glad to sit down and eat with them. But think of how much more magnified this is now because it's not just that he's having breakfast with his disciples and specifically Peter. He's doing it after they all left and after Peter specifically three times has sworn off that he even knows Jesus. But Jesus says, come, let's have breakfast together. Isaiah 42, at the beginning of Isaiah 42, it says that the one who God is going to send will not break a bruised reed. Peter and the other disciples are a bruised reed. They're wounded because of what's happened and their part in it. Jesus isn't going to break them. He's going to heal them. And that's where we get to this last part. We get to the part of his gracious wounding. Now, he says here, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, 
Lord, you know, and look at that word, everything. That's a little bit different than his first two responses. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What's going on here? We already talked about how Peter had denied Jesus, ever knowing him, despite the fact that he said, I will stand by you, thick or thin, no matter what, I'm willing to die with you. He still betrays him, right? But how did he do it? He did it publicly amongst the other disciples, and he basically said, look, Jesus, you don't know me. You don't understand what I'm like. You may think that I'm going to leave you, but I am not. And so now we get to this third question that Jesus asks, the third time he asks it. And we see now Peter's response has changed a little bit. He says, you know everything. He's been humbled, hasn't he? That third time created a brokenness in his spirit. Now, if you've ever been through surgery or you've had an injury and you've had to do rehab, you know that that afterwards, it's painful, right? But ultimately, even though it's painful in that moment, that surgery and that rehab are bringing healing to you. And that's what's happening here with Peter. Jesus is healing him by graciously in this moment wounding him so that Peter understands that Jesus still loves him. Peter finally comes to the point where he says, Lord, you know everything. He wasn't willing to say that before, but now he does. So Jesus restores Peter in the present. Now let's look at the call here, and it's probably the most famous part of this passage, right? Three times he asked, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter responds, yes, you know that I love you. And here's what he says each time. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus says, Peter, not only are you a fisher of men, but you're a shepherd, and I want you to feed my sheep. Three little words in our English language that so much could be unpacked from. Lambs and sheep are not the smartest animal. They're not the cleanest animal. They're not the most loyal animal. And yet Jesus says, feed them, tend to them. Why? Because of that word in the middle. They're my sheep. They're my lambs, Peter. And they have value because I love them. Lastly, Jesus readjusts Peter's focus towards the future. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter, when you were younger, you used to do whatever you wanted. I've called you to be a fisher of men. I've called you to be a shepherd to my sheep. And as you do it, you're going to face difficulty. And ultimately, you're going to experience a painful death. But Peter, doing that will bring glory to me. See, Peter had said he didn't know Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, Peter, when that time comes, you're going to glorify my name. You're going to make much of my name. And historically, even though it's not recorded directly in the Bible for us, historically, we believe that Peter died somewhere around 64 or 65 BC, uh, AD, around the time of the great fire of Rome. And Nero used that time to persecute the Christians, one of whom was Peter. And they said, you know what? We're just going to crucify him. And Peter says, you know what? That's fine. But when you do it, do it upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way my Savior was. Peter, through your suffering and death, you're going to glorify me. He calls him to readjust his outlook for the future. See, Peter was in a spot where he didn't know what was going on, which end was up. And now Jesus says to him, Peter, focus. So here's the call. He says, follow me. Now that's exactly what he said back in Luke 5 when he first called him on the Lake of, uh, Sea of Galilee. Follow me. But notice he says this after he tells him all the bad stuff is going to happen. Right? That's not normally how we do things, right? When we want somebody to do something, we normally build up how great it's going to be, right? You don't put out a job description that says, Pay is lousy, hours are lousy. You don't want this job to come anyway. But Jesus says, you know what? You're going to go through so much, Peter, by following me. But do it anyway. And we know that Peter does. That doesn't mean there's not joy and blessings in following Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. But if we're not clear that suffering is entailed with it, then we're missing part, an important part, of Jesus' message. And then he says, but still come do it. Now, we come to my favorite part, a little bit of hope for us. Notice what it says here. When, now, we've just had a really intense conversation, right? A really beautiful moment for Peter where he's publicly restored after his betrayal of Jesus. We find out that his failure was not fatal. Jesus has given him the charge to fish, to feed, to follow. And what happens in the very next moment, as they're walking along the beach, he turns around and there's John. And what does Peter say? Hey, what about this guy? You said that I'm going to suffer. What do you have in store for him? And Jesus' response is, is, is awesome, isn't it? 
Peter, it's none of your business. You focus, Peter, and isn't that a great word for us? Focus on what I've called you to, not what I've called someone else to. And Peter's question here, you notice John is writing because he's got to correct a rumor that started as a result of Peter's question and Jesus' response, because the other disciples apparently took this to say, oh, John's not going to die, and they started this rumor, and now John's like, that's not what he really said. What he said was, if I don't die, what's it to you? You focus on following Jesus. Peter wasn't the man he was going to be, but he wasn't the man he previously was. He's still in process, and that gives me hope as I read this passage, because I know I'm just like him. I know my faults and my failures, and I'm sure you do too in your own life. And yet Jesus wasn't done with Peter, and despite this wonderful, tender moment, Peter still sort of doesn't get it. And we'll see later on in Acts and Galatians, there are other moments where he doesn't get it either. And yet Jesus still graciously says, follow me. All right, so a bit of application here for us. All right, now, I'm not going to go through all of these, but just a couple points. Jesus calls imperfect people to be part of his perfect plan to rescue and restore other imperfect people whom he's created in his image. That's what he's really telling Peter here. Peter, you messed up big time. But that mess becomes a message in my hands as the Messiah. Follow me. What do you imagine Jesus' posture is towards you when you fail? Is he disappointed? Is he disgruntled? Or does he interact with you like he does with Peter? And what's your posture toward him when he reminds you of things that you've forgotten? or don't want to deal with? What's your posture towards him when he wants to restore you from your failures? What's your posture toward him when he wants to refocus your attention because your life has gotten sidetracked and you're not on the path he's called you to? How can we have confidence that Jesus will do this? And here's where we end. How can we have confidence that Jesus can graciously remind, restore, and readjust us and take our messes and turn them into messages? Let's look back at the most famous part of this passage here and look what it says. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. There's one of two ways we can read that interaction. We can read it that in spite of Peter's failures, Jesus can still use him. And if we do it that way, we sort of read this like, Peter, you messed up. I know I love you, and I want, to, uh, I want to be with you. Okay, then go prove it. Or 
we can read it like this. Jesus says to Peter, you messed up. Peter, head down. I, I know I did, Lord. But you know I love you. Jesus, you're qualified. Do you see the difference? Jesus is not saying he's qualified in spite of his failure. Jesus is saying to Peter, you're qualified because of your failure. He's not saying to you and I, we're qualified despite our failure, and we have to overcome it. He's saying you're qualified because of your failure. Now, I love this quote, and here's where I want to end. It comes from Jared Wilson, who is a professor and theologian. He says, the only deal that Jesus is willing to make with, with us is his righteousness for our guilt and our absolute surrender. Let me say that again. The only deal Jesus is willing to make with us is his righteousness for your guilt and absolute surrender. This whole series we've been going through has been on the idea of what is Jesus committed to. As this book ends, as this series ends, as this passage ends, I want to tie together here what it is that I see that he's committed to. Throughout the gospel and in this section, one, he's committed to God's glory. We've seen that all along, right? He's willing to go to the cross but he's committed to God's glory in this particular case because of something else he's committed to. He's committed to rescuing, restoring, and repurposing people like you and me who are failures. He uses imperfect people like us to show other imperfect people the one true and perfect God who loves them and all their faults and failures, including like Peter when they think they're all that, which are greater, those failures are greater than what we want to acknowledge, but his love is greater and more wonderful than we can imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for John pointing us in the direction of this perfect Savior. Thank you for calling us to come and be with you. Thank you that you take our failures and you take our messes and you use them, God, and we're not qualified in spite of them, but because of them, because we know that we, our only hope is your grace and mercy, the grace and the mercy of the Savior who takes our messes, the Messiah who takes our messes and turns them into a message that others might have hope. God, help us to see as a church body the call to fish, to feed, and to follow, and to encourage and build one another up in that, I pray. In your precious and holy name this day, Jesus. Amen.